0: Section 15 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K Hand. Louis XIV, Part 3. Yet it was then that he made the most fatal mistake of his life, the evil consequences of which pursued him to his death. He revoked the Edict of Nantes which Henry IV had granted and which had secured religious toleration. This he did from a perverted conscience, wishing to secure the unanimity and triumph of the Catholic faith. To this he was incited by the best woman with whom he was ever brought in intimate relations. In this he was encouraged by all the religious bigots of his kingdom. He committed a monstrous crime that good might come, not foreseeing the ultimate consequences, and showing anything but an enlarged statesmanship. This stupid folly alienated his best subjects, and sowed the seeds of revolution in the next reign, and tended to undermine the throne. Richelieu would never have consented to such an insane measure, for this cruel act not only destroyed veneration at home, but created detestation among all enlightened foreigners. It is a hackneyed saying that, The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. But it would seem that the persecution of the Protestants was an exception to this truth, and a persecution all the more needless and revolting since the Protestants were not in rebellion against the government as in the time of Charles the Ninth. This diabolical persecution, justified however by some of the greatest men in France, had its intended results. The bigots who incited that crime had studied well the principles of successful warfare. As early as 1666, the king was urged to suppress the Protestant religion, and long before the Edict of Nantes was revoked, the Protestants had been subjected to humiliation and annoyance. If they held places at court, they were required to sell them. If they were advocates, they were forbidden to plead. If they were physicians, they were prevented from visiting patients. They were gradually excluded from appointments in the army and navy. Little remained to them except commerce and manufactures. Protestants could not hold Catholics as servants. Soldiers were unjustly quartered upon them. Their taxes were multiplied. Their petitions were unread. But in 1685 dragonades subjected them to still greater cruelties, who tore up their linen for camp beds and emptied their mattresses for litters. The poor, unoffending Protestants filled the prisons and dyed the scaffolds with their blood. They were prohibited under the severest penalties from the exercise of their religion. Their ministers were exiled, their children were baptized in the Catholic faith, their property was confiscated, and all attempts to flee the country were punished by the galleys. Two millions of people were disenfranchised, 200,000 perished by the executioners or in prisons or in the galleys. All who could fly escaped to other countries, and those who escaped were among the most useful citizens, carrying their arts with them to enrich countries at war with France. Some 200,000 contrived to fly, thus weakening the kingdom and filling Europe with their execrations. Never did a crime have so little justification, and never was a crime followed with severer retribution. Yet Letelier, the Chancellor, at the age of eighty, thanked God that he was permitted the exalted privilege of affixing the seal of his office to the act before he died. Madame de Montenon declared that it would cover Louis with glory— Madame de Savigny said that no royal ordinance had ever been more magnificent. Hardly a protest came from any person of influence in the land, not even from Fenelon. The great bossuet at the funeral of Letelier thus broke out. Let us publish this miracle of our day and pour out our hearts in praise of the piety of Louis. This new Constantine, this new Theodosius, this new Charlemagne, through whose hands heresy is no more." The Pope, though at this time hostile to Louis, celebrated a Te Deum. Among those who fled the kingdom to other lands were 9,000 sailors and 12,000 soldiers, headed by Marshal Schomberg and Admiral Duquesne, the best general and best naval officer that France then had. Other distinguished people transferred their services to foreign courts. The learned Cloud, who fled to Holland, gave to the world an eloquent picture of the persecution. Jurieu, by his burning pamphlets, excited the insurrection of Sevan, Bassange and Rapin, the historians, Saurine, the great preacher, Papine, the eminent scientists, and other eminent men, all exiles, weakened the supports of Louis. France was impoverished in every way by this great miracle of the reign, so that, says Martin, the new temple that Louis had pretended to erect to unity fell to ruin as it rose from the ground, and left only an open chasm in place of its foundations. The nothingness of absolute government by one alone was revealed under the very reign of the great king. The rebound of the revocation overthrew all the barriers within which Louis had entrenched himself. All the smothered fires of hatred and of vengeance were kindled anew in Holland and in every Protestant country. William of Orange headed the confederation of hostile states that dreaded the ascendancy and detested the policy of Louis the Fourteenth. All Europe was resolved on the humiliation of a man it both feared and hated. The Great War, which began in 1688 when William of Orange became King of England on the flight of James the Second, was not sought by Louis this war cannot be laid to his military ambition he provoked it indeed indirectly by his arrogance and religious persecutions but on his part it was as truly defensive as were the wars of napoleon after the invasion of russia whatever is truly heroic in the character of louis was seen after he was 48. whatever claims to greatness he may have had are only to be sustained by the memorable resistance he made to united europe in arms against him when his great ministers and his best generals had died Turenne died in 1675, Colbert in 1683, Condé in 1686, Le Tellier in 1687, and Louvois in 1691. Then it was that his great reverses began, and his glory paled before the son of the King of England. These reverses may have been the result of incapacity, and they may have been the result of the combined forces which outnumbered or overmatched his own. Certain it is that in the terrible contest to which he was now doomed, he showed great force of character and great fortitude, which command our respect. I cannot enter on that long war which began with the League of Augsburg in 1686 and continued to the Peace of Ryswick in 1697—nine years of desperate fighting, when successes and defeats were nearly balanced, and when the resources of all the contending parties were nearly exhausted. France, at the close of the war, was despoiled of all her conquests and all the additions to her territory made since the Peace of Nymgouen, except Strasbourg and Alsace. For the first time since the accession of Richelieu to power, France lost ground. The interval between this war and that of the Spanish succession, an interval of three years, was only marked by the ascendancy of Madame de Maintenon and a renewed persecution— directed not against Protestants, but against those Catholics who cultivated the highest and freest religious life, and in which Bousset appears to a great disadvantage by the side of his rival, the equally illustrious Fenelon. It was also marked by the gradual disappearance of the great lights in literature. La Fontaine died in 1695, Racine in 1699, Boileau was as good as dead, Mesdames de Sablire and de Lafayette and bousset Rabutin, La Bruyere and Madame Sevigné all died about this time. The only great men at the close of the century in France who made their genius felt were Bousset, who encouraged the narrow intolerance which aimed to suppress the Jansenists and the Quietists, and Fenelon, who protected them although he did not join them, the Eagle of Mayo and the Swan of Cambrai, as they were called offering in the realm of art the eternal duality of strength and grace, like Michelangelo and Raphael, the one inspiring the fear and the other the love of God, yet both seeing in the Christian religion the highest hopes of the world. The internal history of this period centers around those pious mystics of whom Madame Guillon was the representative, and those inquiring intellectual Jansenists who had defied the Jesuits but were finally crushed by an intolerant government. The lamentable dispute between Busset and Fenelon also then occurred, which led to the disgrace of the latter, as a banishment to his diocese was regarded. But in his exile his moral influence was increased rather than diminished, while the publication of his Télémanque, made without his consent from a copy that had been abstracted from him, won him France and Europe, though it rendered Louis the Fourteenth forever irreconcilable. Bousset did not long survive the banishment of his rival, and died in 1704, a month before Bordelot, and two years before Bale. France, intellectually, under the despotic intolerance of the king, was going through an eclipse or hastening to a dissolution, while the material state of the country showed signs of approaching bankruptcy. The people were exhausted by war and taxes, and all the internal improvements which Colbert had stimulated were neglected. The fisheries of Normandy were ruined and the pasture lands of Alsace were taken from the peasantry Picardy lost a twelfth part of its population many large cities were almost abandoned in Normandy out of seven hundred thousand people there were but fifty thousand who did not sleep on straw the linen manufactures of Brittany were destroyed by the heavy duties touraine lost one fourth of her population The silk trade of Tours was ruined. The population of Troyes fell from 60,000 to 20,000. Lyon lost 20,000 souls since the beginning of the war. In spite of these calamities, the blinded king prepared for another exhausting war in order to put his grandson on the throne of Spain. This last and most ruinous of all his wars might have been averted if he only could have cast away his ambition and his pride. Humbled and crippled, he yet could not part with the prize which fell to his family by the death of Carlos II of Spain. But Europe was determined that the Bourbons should not be further aggrandized. Thus, in 1701, war broke out with even intensified animosities and lasted twelve years, directed on the one part by Marlborough, Eugene, and Heinsius, and on the other part by Villars, Vendomé, and Cantinat during which the finances of France were ruined and the people reduced to frightful misery. It was then that Louis melted up the medallions of his former victories to provide food for his starving soldiers. He offered immense concessions, which the Allies against him rejected. He was obliged to continue the contest with exhausted resources and a saddened soul. He offered Marlborough four millions to use his influence to procure a peace, but this general, Venal as he was, preferred ambition to money. The despair which once overwhelmed Holland now overtook France. The French marshals encountered a greater general than William Third, whose greatness was in the heroism of his soul and his diplomatic talents, rather than in his genius on the battlefield. But Marlborough, who led the Allies, never lost a battle, nor besieged a fortress he did not take. His master stroke was to transfer his operations from Flanders to the Danube. At Blenheim was fought one of the decisive battles of the world in which the Teutonic nations were marshaled against the French. The Battle of Ramillies completed the deliverance of Flanders, and Louis, completely humiliated, agreed to give up ten Flemish provinces to the Dutch, and to surrender to the Emperor of Germany all that France had gained since the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. He also agreed to acknowledge Anne as Queen of Great Britain and to banish the pretender from his dominions. England was to retain Gibraltar and Spain to cede to the Emperor of Germany her possessions in Italy and the Netherlands. But France, with all of her disasters, was not ruined. The Treaty of Utrecht, 1713, left Louis nearly all his inherited possessions except in America. Louis was now seventy-four, an old man whose delusions were dispelled, and to whom successive misfortunes had brought grief and shame. He was deprived by death of his son and grandson, who gave promise of rare virtues and abilities. Only a feeble infant, his great-grandson, was the heir of the monarchy. All his vast enterprises had failed. He suffered, to all appearance, a righteous retribution for his early passion for military glory. He had invaded the rights of Holland, and Holland gave him no rest until, with the aid of the surrounding monarchies, France was driven to the verge of ruin. He had destroyed the cities of the Palatinate, and the Rhine provinces became a wall of fire against his armies. He had conspired against liberty in England, and it was from England that he experienced the most fatal opposition. His wars, from which he had expected glory, ended at last in the curtailment of his original possessions. His palaces, which had excited the admiration of Europe, became the monuments of extravagance and folly. His persecutions, by which he hoped to secure religious unity, sowed the seeds of discontent, anarchy, and revolution. He left his kingdom politically weaker than it was when he took it. He entailed nothing but disasters to his heirs. His very grants and pensions were subversive of intellectual dignity and independence. At the close of the 17th century, the great lights had disappeared. He survived his fame, his generals, his family, and his friends. The infirmities of age oppressed his body, and the agonies of religious fears disturbed his soul. We see no greatness but in his magnificence. We strip him of all claims to genius, and even to enlightened statesmanship, and feel that his undoubted skill in holding the reins of government must be ascribed to the weakness and degradation of his subjects, rather than to his own strength but the verdicts of the last and present generation of historians educated with hatred of irresponsible power may be again reversed and louis the fourteenth may loom up in another age if not as the grand monarch whom his contemporaries worshipped yet as a man of great natural abilities who made fatal mistakes and who like napoleon after him alternately elevated and depressed the nation over which he was called to reign not like napoleon as a usurper and a fraud but as an honest though proud and ambitious sovereign who was supposed to rule by divine right of whom the nations of europe were jealous who lived in fear and hatred of his power and who finally conspired not to rob him of his throne and confine him to a rock but to take from him the provinces he had seized and the glory in which he shone authorities Voltaire's age of louis the fourteenth Henri martin's history of france Miss Pardot's History of the Court of Louis XIV, Letters of Madame de Maintenon, Memoirs de Graville, Saint-Simon, P. Clement, Les Gouvernements de Louis XIV, Memoirs de Choisy, Overs de Louis Fourteenth, Lumière's Histoire de Louis XIV, Quincy's Histoire Militaire de Louis XIV, Lives of Colbert, Turenne, Valbon, Condé, and Louvois, Macaulay's History of England, Lives of Fenelon and Bousset, Memoirs de Foucault, Memoirs des ducs de Bourgogne, Histoire de Lédi- Des Nantes, Léher's Histoire de Louis Fourteenth; Memoirs de Madame de Lafayette, Memoirs de Saint-Hilaire, Memoirs de... Maréchal de Berwick, Memoirs de Valette, lettres de Madame de Savigny, Memoirs de la Mademoiselle de Montspensier, Memoirs de Cratyna, Life by James. End of section 15